Simple Beep, episode 34, My Dream App. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this episode, we're going to do a little bit of a time capsule episode, looking at a project that happened 10 years ago in 2006 called My Dream App, which was not just a single app, as we'll see. And I was not particularly familiar with this project, but I think Brian has a bit more on it. But before we get to that, how about some follow-up from last time? Yes. One of the apps that we mentioned in our previous episode was Hotline. And listener Wayne Dixon wrote to us on Twitter to say that there was also a Hotline client for Windows where we thought it might have been a Mac exclusive. Right. And I think that this was perhaps clouded by the way that I used Hotline and only used a couple different servers on Hotline. And now that I think about it, there was all kinds of Windows-only wares and malware and garbage <laughs> and stuff floating around on Hotline as well. And if I had just clicked another link or two deeper on the Wayback Machine link that we put in last episode's show notes, you could go to the support or download pages and see that there were Windows and Mac clients. But my primary experience with Hotline, like I said, this was one of my just primary online hangouts like in high school was a Vera line, which went along sort of with the Ambrosia game Avera, which was the like, 3D mech warrior type battle game with very basic three-dimensional graphics. And you could play even over dial-up, although not very well. There was horrible lag. But there was a sort of uh, map and mod community that sprung up around that. And people would go on there to try to find games, uh, you know, because there was no central server for finding a game. You would basically have to get an invite to a particular address to go and play over the wide area network. So there was that community, and I realized as I was looking into this earlier today that then that became a product, also called a Veraline, which was confusing, where the official hotline client was starting to die out, and there were people who had been on this Veraline server for years and years, and they also wanted to extend what the software could do. This was also in the OS, uh, the classic OS to OS X transition. And so they created essentially a new protocol and new product, also called a Veraline. And in their FAQ, it says, why was it called a Veraline? And they said, because that's the name of the server that we had for the past five years. Um, it was kind of funny how those things eventually broke apart from each other. In the final days of a Veraline the hotline server, it was kind of almost a joke to go on and say, hey, who wants to play Avera? Because it was getting rather long in the tooth. One final note on that is that I found also that because some people on the internet have a lot more disposable free time than I do, <laughs> there is a project that is creating a Python clone of Avera that from the screenshots looks dead on and because it's written in Python, it uses like one dependent 3D rendering library, but is otherwise completely cross-platform. I'm not sure if it contains uh, the multiplayer support or not. I would be kind of surprised if it did. But it's interesting that that community, very small community of fans of that game, which was far from Ambrosia's most successful, uh, still carries on to this day. And... Like I said, that was where I hung out. I, I also got some dug up some screenshots of my hotline setup and saw even the server list that I had. And there was like a Vera line 
and one for kaleidoscope schemes called Schemer's Outpost. And that was, you know, I, I was self-selecting those basically Mac-only servers, even though it was a cross-platform application. I think that does it for follow-up. So let's get on to our topic for today, which is My Dream App, a fantastic competition that happened in 2006. Tell us all about it, Brian. Yeah, it was pitched as kind of an American Idol competition for application ideas. And I think it's worth pointing out that uh, this is the later half of 2006. So as far as the Mac community and product line is concerned, we're solidly into OS X. Uh, Intel Macs are out, but we're, we still haven't like fully transitioned over to that line. And maybe most importantly, this is before the iPhone was announced and definitely before Apple had its own app store. Uh, as I was poking around the internet archive of my dream apps, pretty extensive website, it was fun for me to see how often dig was mentioned. Uh, this, this after all was a competition that relied on people voting and dig was the primary mechanism of like my app ideas on dig or the contest in general is on dig or this iteration of my idea. This round of voting is all on dig, 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 dig. Well, dig was synonymous with voting on the internet at that point too. That was their entire their entire model was based on upvotes and downvotes, something that we kind of take for granted now, but even things like on YouTube videos, the thumbs up, thumbs down there was basically borrowed from the same model on Dig. And even like Facebook likes, I think, were basically b- borrowed from the same idea, except that they didn't want to also have the downvote negativity. <laughs> exactly. And Dig may have been actually where I first heard of this competition. Uh, but it did become pretty popular within the Mac community. Like I said, there it was about user-submitted ideas for applications that they probably wouldn't be able to develop themselves, but felt very strongly about and thought that there was a greater need in the world for them to exist. People who would just visit the site to track its progress could vote, but there were also many like prominent names from the Mac community that were official judges as well. And we'll get to some of those names later. And the whole goal is that the top three ideas, as established by these vote counts, would be brought to life by some already established Mac developers. So let's talk about some of the people who were behind this, because I would say all of them have gone on to continue being a part of the Mac or later iOS developer community. The main mastermind and creator of my dream app was Phil Rue, who I don't think is a developer in his own right, but is a, a very good marketer and has worked on the design of some successful apps since then, and also masterminded some other uh, Mac community initiatives. Before my dream app, I think he was running some sites, Mac Themes, which is self-explanatory, and Widget Factory which was kind of a clearinghouse for some shareware Mac apps, probably developed by his friends. And he's gone on to be part of the software firm Impending, who has worked on the very popular to-do app Clear and the virtual pet app Hatch and that party game Heads Up that dominated the App Store charts. Yeah, I w- went to their website and Hatch was a little bit terrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a like virtual pet game. And uh, the art style was 
I was taken aback a little bit. Clear also has a very uh, distinctive visual style, which was, I think, part of its appeal on iOS. And uh, I didn't know that they were involved with Heads Up as well. But I mean, I think everyone knows. Everyone has run into someone who's like, you're standing in line and begging people to play Heads Up. And the lead developer who would probably be working on some of the My Dream App finalists, as well as overseeing development in general of the My Dream App finalists was John Casasanta, who before My Dream App made the successful iClip software utility for Macs, and then later went on to found the iOS development studio Tap Tap Tap, whose big flagship app is Camera Plus, and they have a lot of other successful apps as well. So I have a question about how this works, and you may or may not know, Brian. Um, but as I was thinking about this, I was like, okay, so I, it's a very cool concept that People are always coming up with ideas for apps that don't exist that would make their lives better. And that still happens today. That's happened for as long as there's been computing. But the notion here that then some of these ideas are going to be selected and then made reality, well, that's going to take a lot of labor. So some of these people involved are, are you know, they were the developers on the project, but what was their incentive to do this? Because I think we think about this a lot, especially with independent developers on iOS today, that basically every hour of their time is sacred towards making their living. And people talk about now with, oh, well, are you going to develop a tvOS app? Well, it's a lot like iOS. It would take, it wouldn't be that difficult, but every hour needs to go to my primary breadwinner, especially because I can't charge extra for a tvOS app. So these three people who were, uh, basically volunteering, were they, to to make these apps reality? Or was there expected to be some sort of revenue sharing agreement when they finally came out? Or what was the deal here? I'm almost positive that somewhere on the My Dream App site, it laid out that, that there would be a revenue share plan. The developer assigned to each finalist app would be guaranteed a share of whatever revenue the app eventually brought in. Okay, well, that that makes sense then. I, I guess you figure that if, if you cast a really wide net and then because there were three apps, and if especially if they would pool among them instead of be like a competition all the way through their entire lives, that you would hope that you would have at least one big winner in terms of, yes, being an app that many people actually wanted and would actually be willing to pay for, and that would fund the whole enterprise. Yeah, and and we'll get to whether or not this was a bet that paid off uh, towards the end of our episode. Um, but to continue on the the people behind my dream app, uh, Phil and John, who we've already discussed, would later collaborate on Mac Heist or the Heist on iOS, which was a hugely successful and I think may even still be a a, a live project. It pops up from time to time. Yeah, a, a bundle of Mac software with a puzzle-solving element behind it. It took me a long time to figure out what Mac Heist was even about. I'm like, wait, do I have to do the puzzles? Is the game Does the game get me anything? Do I just buy it? I think for the first like three Mac Heists, I didn't realize that there was some other component to it. And I, I don't know, it was, it was very confusing to me. I got a couple good deals from it. I've never uh, participated, but uh, yeah, from, for me as a casual observer of the Mac Heist, piece of, of these developers' projects. Uh, it did, I, was, I had the same confusions, and I think I was always thinking, like, I'll wait for everyone else to do the work, 
and like unlock the goodies by solving more puzzles and then never felt particularly motivated to buy the bundle even with like the extra stuff in it. Yeah, I know I, I got one or two of them. And the the heist app for iOS, it it was it, there was some production value there. It was I would say like mist level of of world navigating and not quite mist level of puzzle solving. And I think I spent a lot of time on it and then you would get to the end of a level and you would get some code for uh f- for a deal on an app and that was not really worth as much as just the enjoyment of doing some puzzles. And then there was a team of three more developers who would be doing the bulk of the development work on the finalists. The first was Austin Sarner, who at the time had made the successful app, App Zapper, uh, which would do the grunt work of deleting all the little bits of uh, other files that an app would leave behind. Because the promise of the Mac was you drag an app's icon to the trash to get rid of it. And that should be all you need to do. And then it leaves two gigabytes of junk in uh, application support. <laughs> exactly. And so he made a, a successful app that was well-designed, uh, but maybe well-designed for its era, which is another thing we'll get to, um, and, and had some success from that. I used AppZapper for a long time, but I've replaced it at this point because there is a feature of another app, which is Hazel, that does exactly the same thing. And there's no point in having a uh, having a separate app rather than uh, just the feature of Hazel. It's it's even nicer. You do literally just drag the icon to the trash, and Hazel says, oh, you put an app in the trash, and then takes care of that same process. Whereas with AppZapper, you had to go in and do it manually. But it was a very cool app, um, and also very much of its time, the icon was like a big ray gun, pew-pew AppZapper. <laughs> and at the same time that Austin was part of my dream app, he was working on his second app, Disco, which I thought was maybe like the banner app for this era of Mac OS app design because it was a simple CD burner app. The same functionality was built into the Finder's disk burning, iTunes disk burning, but Disco's selling point was that it had GPU accelerated smoke effects because the CD was burning. It's an app that I can definitely say prioritized form over function. And I think that that was a big consideration of a lot of these dream app ideas that people were pitching. They not only had an idea that would accomplish something, but a lot of them wanted their app to be beautiful in that mid 2000s Macintosh lickable buttons way. Yeah. The, the, the amount of function in this app, I think you're right, Brian. I'm just looking at the the website for it on the Wayback machine. You could download the public beta, which was 700 K and you could purchase it for 1495 or you could use the finder. Um, Austin Sarner would go on after my dream app to work at a bunch of really successful companies, Sofa Design, Push Pop Press, both of which were acquired by Facebook. And I think Push Pop got an Apple Design Award. And uh, he worked at Jelly for a little bit, which was Biz Stone's own company after Biz Stone left Twitter. And I think he's still active on the scene and enjoying success today. The next developer in the My Dream App stable was Jason Harris, who made Chicken of the VNC, which I never had reason to use, but always appreciated the name and icon. I used it. It was my number one uh, VNC screen sharing app in, in college when I would leave my laptop in my dorm room and screen share from out on campus. Um, got Sherlocked by uh, screen sharing in OS X later on. 
And he also worked at Unsanity on the Shapeshifter Haxi, which uh, was similar to Kaleidoscope, but in the Mac OS X era. Oh, poor Unsanity. We should do a whole show on Unsanity. Yeah, we should. Those Haxies were, were bad news, but did some cool things. <laughs> yeah. And finally, Martin Ott, who worked on Sabitha Edit. Which we just talked about last episode, right? Exactly, yeah. And so those that was the development and management team. And like I said, it wouldn't just be casual users or readers of the MyDreamApp website that would vote. But the team actually got some big names from the Mac community to be on their judging panel as well, including Steve Wozniak, Guy Kawasaki, David Pogue, Kevin Rose, uh, Jason Snell, Jim Dalrymple, lots of big names from around the Mac scene. Definitely. So what about the apps? I think a persistent theme with my dream app and the team behind it is that they were just really, really good at marketing. Like they, they knew how to make their concepts appealing and they definitely knew how to bring people in both like the casual viewers and these big names. So there were over 2,700 ideas submitted which the team and the guest judges whittled down to 24 finalists. And when all was said and done and the voting had finished, they presented it as uh, the top three apps by vote tally, which were the ones that would go on to be developed as well as the three runner ups below it. So those were the ones we chose to discuss on our show today. I feel like that is pretty huge, especially since the notion of viral marketing was not really wound up at that point. Um, so this was in 2006. So I guess Twitter existed, but just barely. YouTube's maybe just barely. Yeah. So, and you said that there were 2,700 applicants. I mean, if you had 2,700 followers on Twitter in early 2007, which is as as this was proceeding and, and wrapping up, um, that was considered a lot. So they definitely they definitely went to the appropriate channels in the Mac community. And of course there were many and you know the the names of the judges that you mentioned had links to those various uh channels of distribution that were more coming out of the traditional media as opposed to the social media side of things. Yeah, and uh I think the 2700 number is also huge when you consider that these are people who want to make a Mac app in 2006 not a Windows app or a, you know, again, the iPhone, iOS apps are still a couple years away. I think that's like pretty big for the market of like shareware indie Mac apps at that time. Pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. It also because it was at the time where if you wanted a sort of bite-sized single function app, you might think that in 2006, the web would be the place to develop that as opposed to on especially the Mac desktop. I'm really curious also what the applications looked like uh, or what the format was, you know, because is it just like text field pitch an app to us? Because then there would be, I feel like there would be a lot, a lot of junk um, or whether it was more structured. I think those are probably in parts of the website that are difficult to get to via way back. Uh, but I have to imagine that these these apps that were selected as the finalists and runners up people gave a pretty good uh full-fledged idea of what they wanted and i think that once you were uh selected as one of the 24 finalists you got your own blog on the my dream app website where you could 
you know, write individual posts to drum up votes. And I think the majority of these six winners that we'll discuss took that opportunity to make sometimes crude, sometimes elegant mock-ups and post them as blog entries to their My Dream App sub blog. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the initial application process was. It probably was just text. Aha. Uh-huh. Powered by WordPress, as you can tell just by looking at it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's now discuss the six final winners of the My Dream App competition, starting with the third runner-up, Blossom. The pitch for this app is it's a virtual plant that sits on your desktop and responds to your productivity on your Mac, not to sunlight or water. And so the basic idea is it's one of those productivity trackers that we still have today, um, and it would it would <laughs> respond positively if you were in apps that you set that were work apps. Like if you're a designer, you might say Photoshop, or if you work with spreadsheets, you might say Excel. And it would respond negatively if you were in Safari looking at known blogs or maybe even dig.com. And it would provide that little bit of inspiration to keep your plant healthy by doing the work that you were supposed to be doing. So this makes sense. It's like a it, it's like a more pleasing way of looking at data like you would get from an app like Rescue Time, which still exists today. That's what I was thinking. Of. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one that definitely is still out there today for the Mac. And there you get things that are like bar graphs. But maybe that's not uh, the type of motivation that you need to get your work done. Yeah, rescue time is totally the one I was thinking of. And you know, I wish I had, I had thought of that before recording because I wonder when rescue time was first debuted. Because again, I think a lot of these apps are good ideas. I mean, that's why they won. And uh, I wonder if, if like there are variants on them that exist in the world today. Uh, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong... <laughs> Rescue Time was a Y Combinator startup in winter 2008, so not much later. You know, and I, and I, of course, I'm making no uh, assumptions about like borrowing from one place, right? And and especially because these these apps were presented merely as ideas, right? So I mean, you can't you can't copyright an idea. So so even if you said I I want a time tracker that has an interface that's a plant. You can talk about that forever as long as you don't copy these very detailed things like from the mock-ups, the screenshots that we'll put in the show notes. Like if you don't copy the exact look and feel, that idea is free to make still today. And I actually think that this would – this actually sounds like a fairly cool idea to me. And to me, it sounds much more like something that I would expect to see on iOS, although it's hard to track – um passively your your productivity time on iOS but maybe it would be something also because of the link to like the virtual pets that I thought you know I thought like wait, I thought back to you know like Tamagotchi which were like the keychain things that you had to feed for <laughs> or they got sad and died yeah. it was the opposite like they pestered you and you had would have to like feed them in the middle of the night or they would be sad and they were ruining your productivity and life quality and this is trying to take that and flip it on its head but I was thinking that Maybe this would actually be something like that would be best as like an Apple Watch app, especially if you could, I don't know, somehow smartly use like handoff to get the data from a Mac to the watch. I don't know if that's possible or not, Um, but then that would be the kind of thing. It would be that form factor that people were used to with like a virtual pet. Think of the Apple Watch's activity circles, which are basically like gamifying 
the 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 data readout of essentially like physical productivity. Right. And the whole notion behind this is that, you know, that graphs and pie charts are not really gamifying. They're kind of workifying. <laughs> and so maybe if you have something aesthetically pleasing, it will actually uh, be more successful in that respect. Cool idea. Never happened, right? <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a theme, a recurring theme in this episode. And it's sad as we come to the second runner-up because this is the app that I like joined my dream app to vote for. It's called Whistler. And the idea was it would use your Max microphone as you whistled or hummed or even tapped out a musical melody or even a beat. And it would convert it to MIDI so you could drop it into GarageBand or, or anything else and take your like basic, basic idea of a song and actually start workshopping it in like professional tools. And I thought this was so cool because I would be, you know, like writing a paper for college and I was in college when my dream app was going on and like absentmindedly tapping out a beat on my desk with my other hand and thinking like, Oh, that'd be cool. I wonder if I could like put a little guitar lick to it, but there was no good way to like, if you just ran your, your mic and recorded the tapping on your desk, you couldn't, transform it to like a, an actual beat. It would be the recording of you drumming on your desk, which isn't that great. Yeah. And I saw the, one of this early screenshots for this, I, or I guess mock-up for this. And it has like an out, I, I guess it's an output menu that says GarageBand. I was like, uh, wait, isn't, you know, isn't this kind of a feature of GarageBand? What was GarageBand doing at the time? And so GarageBand came out in 2004 uh, the original version on OS 10. And I guess that, you know, these were some of the features that were not really present in, or, or were not robust enough in those early versions of GarageBand. It then Im immediately made me think of GarageBand for iOS, which came out several years later, um, I think in 2011. And that was where you got this tactile uh, experience with the GarageBand instruments where you could have, I mean, I think in GarageBand still today, you can like try to play piano with a QWERTY keyboard, but that's as impossible as it sounds. Whereas on like the iPad, you actually get, yeah, it's a, it's a small keyboard, but it, it's like a proper keyboard. Or you can get guitar strings that actually kind of behave like guitar strings. Or a drum kit with the like cymbals and hi-hats and the toms. And where you can just put in like, extremely basic input just like a basic beat and then say play this in a different style and it has the like what are they like i don't think they're called drum machines they're like drum profiles and you can you can change them on the fly like while the song is playing so obviously that's a very cool idea that was pretty much realized in ios GarageBand, and i think even a little bit in the more recent music memos app that apple released too which is basically to capture I think melody more so than percussion, but uh, like kind of workshop it a little bit and send it off to GarageBand. I now have this great vision of some person in Apple, whoever was the one who got that project off the ground. Hey, you remember that thing Whistler never happened? Let's make it happen. We've got hundreds of billions of dollars in the bank. We can do it. And again, like, so we, we've just spent a couple minutes discussing. This is an idea that came to be realized on iOS. Uh, and I think a lot of these... Like you said, Ed, like single purpose apps are so much better suited to iOS 
that maybe that's one of the reasons, as we'll come to see, that and none of these Mac apps uh, ever made it to market. Yeah, as long as they don't have those necessary connections to other things, either within the iOS system or even harder to you know to work more cross-platform. Um, yeah, single-purpose apps really really shine on on iOS. The final runner-up was an app called Hijack which aimed to be a native Cocoa app for browsing discussion forums. It took me a while to figure out why it was called this, and then I got it. Because it's for, like, on a discussion board, if you hijack a thread by by changing the topic. Oh, see, I just got it. I'm like, that doesn't seem like a very positive name. I mean, there, there's, like, audio hijack now, but um, I, that has to be what it was going for. One of the interesting things with this one was that later on in the project... Um, uh, I think another developer took it up and and was running with the idea and making mockups and and beta versions. And they said we're changing the name. And then I found the latest version of their blog on the Wayback Machine. And about two posts down, they're like, "We can tell you we're making a pre-announcement about the name. It's not uh, what was it? It's not Boardwalk. Very funny pun, but it's not that. And it's not. It doesn't have hijack in the name anymore." And it's one word, and it's a dictionary word. And we're not telling you now, we'll announce it later. And then they never announced it. These poor dream apps. Dreams unrealized. Uh, but there, there is a mock-up from the dream app competition portion of Hijack. And it's, it's basically like an RSS reader kind of modeled after mail.app. Yeah, bas- the basic you know, three-pane view, where you would have uh, like a source list down one side of all the sites that you wanted to follow and then threads in the top pane, and then preview pane below. Looks extremely standard for uh, Mac app of the time. It makes sense that they're saying you know, pushing native Cocoa, so it looked like they're running basically stock interface for the you know, 2006 OS X, uh, which meant basically brushed metal, aqua-y buttons. You know, it, it still looks good. It's a, it's a cohesive interface, you could imagine taking this app if it existed and updating it to uh, Yosemite design aesthetic, and you know you would just be changing the shape of the buttons and the the flatness of the window, and it, it could live on just the way that Mail.app does. And I wouldn't be surprised if something like this exists, especially on iOS. But I think this app placing as high as it did is kind of reflective of the time that the contest was held in 2006 when there were a lot of these kind of forum-based internet sites like uh, Something Awful or FARC or something like that that had threads and, and forums. And where the uh, the individual threads would get dug and shared around in that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But a lot of social media now, even though the, the basic construct might resemble a thread, uh, it's it's just so spread out and disparate that I don't know if this app has a place in modern web browsing. It has the same place that, for me, like a traditional RSS reader would, because they look extremely similar. Um, so where if you, I mean, there are certainly web-based forum communities that are still robust today. And if you participated in one, you would want to use it in the best way possible. Uh, but they aren't as popular or dominant as they were 10 years ago. Yeah. So should we get into the uh, the third, second, and first place apps that these were the ones that actually got the pledge of development time behind them, right? Yeah, yeah. 
So the third place app has a name that Apple would be proud of because it's very descriptive. It's just called Cookbook. And it's for recipe management, grocery list sharing, and online grocery shopping. Kind of an all-in-one thing with recipes, I think, from from conception to planning out what you need to buy to actually buying it and then following the recipe once you're cooking. Yeah, and I think that there have been a num- number of other apps that try to do one or two or all three of those things since. There was no way to anticipate in 2006 uh, the iPhone, certainly not the iPad. Um, and I know people who are avid chefs and love to keep an iPad in the kitchen. Like maybe they have like an old iPad 2 or third generation iPad that just lives in the kitchen and it has a stand there and that's their recipe book because they enjoy having that. But if this was a Mac app, well, first of all, if you have, if you have a desktop Mac, just like forget it, your desktop Mac is probably not in the kitchen. Um, but also I've done the thing of taking my laptop Mac into the kitchen for, you know, looking up a recipe on a website or something. And it just feels dangerous at all times. And um, maybe to mitigate part of that, and and one of the development or voting process blog posts by the idea creator of Cookbook, um, he did, to his credit, have some cool ways to mitigate some of that danger, uh, specifically not needing to touch the actual machine. Um, One of them was making it a full screen and respond to the Apple remote that was starting to ship with uh, the Intel Max. Oh, great. So your your plastic remote's going to be covered in like egg whites and breadcrumbs. <laughs> yeah, but it's better that than your MacBook Pro. And I think something else, he may have even tried to do uh, whatever it was called at the time, like speakable items, speech recognition, uh, th- what we would now expect Siri to handle. Uh, whatever form it was in the Mac OS at that time, he also wanted Cookbook to integrate with. And I think out of the three finalists, Cookbook made it the farthest in in uh, its development cycle because the official My Dream app Flickr account, which is still active, had uh, some screenshots posted of their development progress. And it appears to be exclusively this app because if you if you look at the top, it's all screenshots and it's all screenshots of Cookbook, um, or at least mockups. Um, as you noted here uh, in our document, Brian, is we're definitely in the rich Corinthian leather phase of OS X skeuomorphism because the majority of these are in a very the window is made a hundred percent of hardwood. <laughs> yeah. um, from the toolbar to even the window widgets are not their standard aqua colors. Um, the sidebars, everything. I mean, it's beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It, remind, um, it reminds me a lot of another app from around the same time, which is a delicious library, which made a little bit more sense because they were going for the bookshelf aesthetic. And I think they also just wrapped it inside a standard unified window. Um, and there are some down here that have the more standard uh, unified brush metal window views that look a lot more Mac-like, and uh, it looks like a really solid app. And looking at the the later screenshots, it seems like they might have been focusing in on recipe management specifically, and not some of the more social features or web-connected features like sharing grocery lists with other people who use Cookbook, or as it was 
explicitly said in one of the blog posts during the contest partnership with amazon.com grocery delivery service which i guess in 2006 was already underway that's amazing uh one of the other funny things is that as you scroll down that uh that page you get to not screenshots you get to actual photos and it's people in a grocery store buying beer riding in a shopping cart playing around with kitchen knives um it appears to be exclusively the cookbook guys <laughs> second place is portal not the game featuring the maniacal artificial intelligence. Um, but this was an app for uh, syncing things across your Macs. And specifically with a, with a cool, not boring visual interface. Because I th- I'm pretty sure that in 2006, Apple's built-in iSync service wasn't filling this use case. And I'm pretty sure this all predates Dropbox. Yep, because... Dropbox was uh, first release in June of 2007. So there was probably a, a serious need for this was, was on the horizon, if not already there, for Mac users in 2006, because uh, Dropbox took off pretty quickly. But uh, thinking about this, I think in one of these, the blog posts that describes their, their further thinking, um, we were talking about uh, revenue sharing. Portal as an app uh, and as a service, if it worked the way it promised to, and it was to the cloud, which was, I guess, an, <laughs> a concept yet to be fully realized in 2006, they would have had to, you know, have web servers somewhere. And this is probably before AWS and other kind of cheap storage. So this was a, an expensive proposition. And I think they realized that because one of the later blog posts said that this would only be for synchronizing files and settings and preferences over Bonjour. So this meant you had to be on the same local network. I mean, that would work pretty well if you were, as long as you didn't have desktop Macs in multiple locations that you needed to sync. How about the interface for this? You said it was a cool visual interface. Yeah, that's what, that's what the, like the pitch or the idea was like, this is what's going to set it apart is that it has to look cool. It has to be doing something. What is happening here? What is happening here? I don't know, man. <laughs> we'll put this, we'll put the mock up. It has to be a mock up, right? Yeah. Um, because the Quicksilver icon is literally flying out of the window at an oblique angle and covering the title bar. <laughs> Maybe that was part, planned to be part of it. Who knows? Who knows what they were thinking? But basically, instead of just showing a progress bar that would indicate, how your stuff was syncing. Well, they would do that too. And it would be a big aqua progress bar. But then um, your icons for your various apps whose settings were getting synced across the Macs would, would fly around in some kind of uh, wormhole contraption. And I look at this and I immediately start hearing like the Doctor Who theme playing in the background. A TARDIS is going to fly out of there. <laughs> and I looked at it, I was like, oh, kind of like the weird spacey metaphor they Apple settled on for time machine, but just not as, I don't know, refined, <laughs> elegant. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, and even with time machine, time machine was a little bit over the top in its original form. And, and Apple has toned it down a bit where now if you enter time machine, it's not like, it's not like the huge galactic swirl going on in the background. There's just, you know, a few, a little texture and pinpoints of light to indicate that you're, you've blocked out the main 
Finder interface. But yeah, I, the the features of this app are are interesting. They, they have a, a preferences pane which covers up all that other nonsense, and it seems a little bit more more sensible. Where you would say, okay, there's a list of maybe twenty different things that you could sync across. Um, some things that seem fairly simple, like um, and the purview of sync apps for a long time, like your calendar and contact information, things that have been much larger problems addressed by Apple with varying success just in the past couple of years, things like your iTunes library or iPhoto library. And we know that big services like iTunes Match and uh, and iCloud Photo Library were built for those and that they're pretty major undertakings. Um, and then some other things that probably just live in various like uh, various application support and preference files around your Mac, things like uh, Dictionary, um, it's, it's pretty hard to get to the custom dictionary entries and that would be cool to have, uh, across your various Macs so that you weren't always becoming Brian Suchers, um, <laughs> on every new Mac that you got until you taught it <laughs> properly. Um, and things like, uh, other settings like desktop wallpaper, um, airport networks, stuff that's, stuff that's useful to have across different Macs. The question is, to what extent was this doable then or shortly thereafter, and what extent has it been been totally obviated, not necessary anymore? Um, you know, those basic things, context calendars, that's just like, check, turn iCloud on, on my new Mac, um, and it's there. Um, and some of those other things, I know that I've done this for, for only a couple apps, um, where you have settings that th- there's no sync service for the app. It doesn't use iCloud. It doesn't do Dropbox uh, syncing as built into the app. And you can do weird things like make a symbolic link to your its application support in your Dropbox and try to get them to sync back and forth, which is a very nerdy thing to do. But it seemed like this app was also uh, aimed at the like power user nerd audience that wants to have all of these things uh, exactly in a line across multiple Macs. So I guess it wasn't possible then because Dropbox wasn't in existence. Um, but once Dropbox came into existence, if you were willing to tinker around a little bit, you could get this kind of same functionality. So who was our big winner first place in uh, in my dream app? It was an app idea called Atmosphere, a virtual window to the outdoor weather for your desktop and with forecasting. It was like a full screen, beautifully detailed weather app. And so, you know, you look at uh, the iOS weather app, especially in uh, like iOS 7 and later, people like beautiful weather apps, not just the readout of like the temperature forecast, the rain percentage, that kind of stuff. But uh, as if your Mac were looking outside using, I guess you would have to type in your location because location services weren't in the OS yet, and it would generate or pull a webcam picture, I'm not sure, of a full screen representation of what it looked like outside. And then in some cool trickery, you could look ahead and the big full screen projection would update to match the like the time of day, the weather conditions, and uh, and still keeping with where you were. Yeah, that very much makes me think of the built-in iOS weather app. Um, or even... Um, some other weather apps that have tried to do similar clever things, 
um like was it the yahoo weather app yeah because yahoo owns Flickr, they created a project to actually try to get uh tagged images that were both geotagged and then tagged with uh semantic information about like weather conditions so if you look up the weather in new york and it's cloudy they'll find a geotagged photo from new york that is also tagged with cloudy of like you know the skyline and you would actually get accurate representations of what you might see in a different part of your town uh or a different or various parts of other places that you would look up in the world um which is an, another interesting way of approaching this problem and with all of those they're fun for a while and then after that i really just want the numbers not maybe that's the kind of person i am the way that i try to interpret a, a weather forecast you know like i want to go to weather underground i want to see graphs i'm i'm the same way and i think this comes back around to the one of the overriding themes of this whole thing is that this was an era where apps were made with rich corinthian leather and it was a equally if not more important how good they looked over what function they were serving so with with all of that in hand and the fact that some of these apps did have um interesting if not really really slick interfaces uh how did they do how did that revenue sharing model work how much revenue did they get to share amongst themselves oh at zero the answer is zero. Oh, one third of zero is zero <laughs> yeah uh but none of them ever became a commercially available product so none of them ever made money and it's arguable how many of the top three ever made it to any kind of stable operating build the last update on the My Dream App website is from July 2007, not even a year after the contest ended and work was begun on these apps. And on Phil Rue's personal website, right now, <laughs> he describes My Dream App as something that crashed and burned spectacularly in its final stage. And uh, we found a tweet from him uh that was addressing someone else who asked, like, whatever happened to it? And in 140 characters, he says, basically, each of the three developers for the top three apps dropped out. So it sounds like, you know, maybe they had other things to work on. They did all come from their own established apps and went on to do other apps. Or maybe, for whatever reason, the app ideas weren't viable, weren't <laughs> working out to be something they wanted to share revenue with. We won't. We don't know for sure, but it it is clear that none of these dream apps became a reality. Yeah, it's it's a little bit too bad, but I think one of the things that it points to, and now that with ten years benefit of hindsight, we can say um, that this was perhaps the very beginning of the decline of the the app market in terms of uh, expensive bespoke apps that do kind of one thing. Um, like what did we say? <laughs> Disco. That was not one of the my not one of the my dream app apps, but it was from one of the related developers. It's just you know, twenty dollars for for smoke effects. Um, and even though some of the top grossing apps on the iOS app store now today are um, kind of similar in that you know the top grossing ones are games where you're buying like virtual currency or extra lives or things like that. Um, 
it's really more along i i mean i don't want to get too into it here but you know it makes me think almost more of like gambling hmm. rather than like oh i'm gonna buy something that just looks really cool um and and drop a lot of money on it um and so there's a different uh a little bit of a different market in terms of what consumers were expecting from from software one thing that may have interrupted the development process is Mac Heist, which launched the first Mac Heist launched in December 2006, only three months after the voting ended and development on the Dream Apps was supposed to begin. And as we both have talked about with Mac Heist, like it was a big production that clearly required a lot of work to lead up with, uh, like the the graphics, the production quality. And that one was bringing in real money. <laughs> right, because they, they raised hundreds of thousands of, well, I don't know, at, at least tens of thousands of dollars for charity. And they were giving, that was only you know, 10% of their revenue or something. And then the rest was getting distributed to the app developers. And uh, Mac Heist may even be worth its own discussion uh, at a later episode because it wasn't without its fair share of controversy. Um, but in the midst of all this, like Mac Heist is going on, development is going on. They did announce a season two of My Dream App, which I think just never got off the ground. It was supposed to coincide with the following year's WWDC, and I'm pretty sure it didn't even get off the ground. And uh, <laughs> because I I am now contractually obligated to mention Panic in every episode, <laughs> uh, Cable Sasser was one of the My Dream App judges, and he tweeted kind of snarkily, in 2009, that he was still looking forward to seeing the wonderful apps that came out of the competition. Uh, it's, it's basically like this was a, a wonderful example of like marketing, close not not viral marketing, but like a great way to engage a very focused community and rally them around some some really cool ideas. And it just fell flat on execution. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about this, you know, and just how speculative it was. And thinking about where that energy is channeled today. And um, for some developers, it, it's that they have to have a great idea on their own or, you know, friends or family help them come up with an idea. And then they say, okay, I'm, I'm you know, staking my career basically on the success of this app. You go into it, you, you pour in time, and then, you know, what what dream app competition can you win today? Well, I mean, I think the only thing that even comes close to qualifying is something like the Apple Design Awards. Uh, another uh, award that people have commented sometimes, especially um, in certain eras of the Mac and iOS prized form over function. Um, and then, oh, if you get if you get an Apple Design Award, you're going to get featured on the App Store uh, and you might get a, a, a nice reward um, the the more like American Idol yeah. <laughs> type type fame, um, where you know that if you get that kind of uh, praise from Apple, that uh, and the publicity that goes along with it, that there is you know even though we talk about the race to the bottom, there is a consistent amount of capital of of money that consumers are willing to put into apps, um, and you could get your your slice of that. Whereas on the other hand, for there's always been this kind of notion that uh, for consumers who just have ideas for apps, that wouldn't it be great if there was some platform where they could 
develop their ideas and turn them into basically full-fledged apps for Mac or iOS or the web or whatever. And there, um, what's the name of that one platform where you literally just put files in Dropbox and it comes up with an app for you and it actually will like wrap up the binary and you can submit it to the app store. The Relay guys built their app on this. I'm going to look it up. So there's, there's always been that, that hope that consumers with, with brilliant ideas will be able to bring them directly to, um, to the reality of becoming an app with only their, their own effort put in, not having to, uh, rely on the beneficence of developers who are volunteering their time or speculating that they hope that, uh, this is all going to work out for them in the end or spending lots of money and going and contracting someone who's going to write an iOS app for them. Because if you're just an average user, if it's not really your business, then, uh, that's probably not, uh, very viable for you either. Real time follow up that platform where you just drag and drop files and it compiles an app for you is Tapjet, And it was used to make the relay.fm app. So, so to wrap this all up, I think that one of the interesting things about the timing of my dream app, not so much its particular successes or failures are just when it happened. And the fact that, um, you know, season two, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, you know, even if season one had been wildly successful, how much longer could they have gone with this with then the iPhone coming out and then the move to the app store economy? Uh, you know, to what extent could something like this have, have survived? It's, it's not all just race to the bottom, but the fact that, uh, just this entire way of thinking about, uh, the way that you would make an idea a reality on any computing platform, whether it's desktop, web, mobile, uh, was really at the end of end of its arc in around 2006. Yeah, and 2006 may seem very recent for the majority of episodes we do on our show, but I think it does kind of serve as the as the bookend, the final piece of a very specific era of what counts as classic Mac and classic Mac community to me. Yeah, absolutely. And we talked in uh, one of our previous episodes when we were talking about the transition to Intel Macs, how there are kind of 10-year generations in Apple's product cycles. And we can we can see that here. Um, this was something that was coming up on the end of a generation. Uh, the, you mentioned it was... It, it did coincide with the beginning of the Intel generation, but that wasn't the thing that was most important here. What was coming around the bend was the app economy that was brought on by the iPhone two years later with, with the introduction of the app store. And, you know, the gold rush that came with that as well, because I think that that was what something like my dream app was trying to capitalize on. They thought that this could be a a big gold rush. You know, you, you get, you get a bunch of really solid winning ideas together and and the the rest will follow um and it turned out that it was just not quite on the right platform at the right time for that so that brings us to the end of our discussion of my dream app but there are dreams still out there if if you remember participating in my dream app and maybe the one you voted wasn't even one of the six finalists there are still pages in the internet archive for each of the 24 finalists, and you can go back and relive uh, 
all of all 24 ideas and maybe remember one that you voted for, definitely hit us up if you have any memories from this contest. You can reach us through the contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, where we also have a list of every episode and its related show notes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. You can also send us feedback on Twitter. The show is at simple underscore beep. And we are both individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening and keep the dream alive. <laughs>